Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. We've been going through this series called The Story. We're literally halfway through. This is sort of halftime. And in some ways, it's the halftime recap. There's no marching band or something else going on on the field. But we are going to be able to recapture in our attention some of the critical priorities that the Bible has been giving us over these last couple of months and position ourselves for where God's going in the story as we move forward. And we're going to use uh, just a specific chapter or two today to hone in on what to the Lord is really a key and critical issue that runs from the exodus to the exile. As we've done this week after week, we've seen three things about God and man and his story that we've reiterated every Sunday. You guys can probably fill in the blank for me, right? Number one is God is the creator and he is in control of all things. God is large and he's in charge and everything is under his control. However, what do we know about humanity? Mankind, on the other hand, sinful on the one hand and yet also loved by God, which just says something so amazing about God, doesn't it? God doesn't love us because of our behavior or even our lovability, but because he is love. And so at every opportunity, we find mankind turning our back on God, rebelling, inventing new and creative ways to rebel against the Lord. And yet God does not let go of his love for us. And the third thing we see over and over then is that God is on mission to save and redeem and bring his people back to himself. And in his sovereign control, he's orchestrating all of history to accomplish this redemptive purpose. And so this morning, I'm going to start just where John started us last week in 2 Kings chapter 17. Or if you have your story Bible, it's pages 219 and 220. But we're not going to stop there. And so if you are using the story Bible, we're going to go beyond just the excerpts that are in there. But we will be starting here in 2 Kings chapter 17. And verses 1 through 6 show us what we call the lower story of what's happening in the political and historical situation of the nation. So here we go. 2 Kings chapter 17 verse 1. It says that in the 12th year of Ahaz, king of Judah... Hoshea, son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned for nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. You know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a poor recommendation when the best thing the Bible can say about you is, yeah, he was a bad guy, but not as bad as all those other guys. Because the kings of Israel were were not model citizens of godliness. They were the opposite. And so to say about this final king of the nation of Israel, he was bad, but he wasn't as bad as all the rest. It's kind of faint praise. And, And just to review the historical situation, next slide. The nation of Israel had split in two. It had divided, well, about 200 years earlier than the time that we're looking at right now, which is about 700 B.C., And the northern kingdom took 10 tribes after the death of Solomon, broke off 
from the line of David and the kings that were descended from David and started what became called, continued the name Israel, was called the Northern Kingdom. And their capital was in, it's open notes, Samaria. Very good. And there were two remaining tribes, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, who had the Southern Kingdom down in the south, so they were called Judah. And their capital was in Jerusalem. And so literally for hundreds of years, God was patiently enduring the repeated practice of idolatry, the unfaithfulness of a people that he had brought up from Egypt and said, I will be your God, you will be my people, follow my ways and worship me only. The people had said, yes, God will do everything you say, but then they went on their other ways. So God sent prophets after prophets to appeal to the people. Uh, There's at least nine specific prophets uh, indicated in scripture that he sent to the northern kingdom to warn them and to call them back. But we see that really they didn't listen. We learned a couple weeks ago about the prophet Elijah, the great confrontation on Mount Baal, on Mount Carmel, where there was a showdown. All the people proclaimed, the Lord, Yahweh, he's God, turned away from Baal worship. Now it's 100 years later, and you can't find a scrap of evidence of that revival ever happening. The people have persisted in idolatry and rebellion. And so now things have escalated. We'll continue in verse three. <clears throat> Next slide. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hoshea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal and had paid him tribute. It's a bit like paying protection money because it would sh- it, Israel was a small and weakened kingdom after the division of the two kingdoms. And big boys, the big kingdoms like Assyria and Egypt, they're the big political power players in the region. And Israel is, well, making sure he pays off the bully on the playground so as not to run into difficulties. The northern kingdom had been paying tribute to the king of Assyria. But Hosea, well, verse 4 says that the king of Assyria discovered that Hosea was a, what's the Bible say? Uh Uh-oh. Uh, because he had sent envoys down to the king of Egypt and he stopped paying the tribute money to the king of Assyria, even though he'd been doing that for years. So was the king of Assyria happy about this or unhappy about this? Unhappy about it. Therefore, Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. Now, that actually took some years, the Bible summarizing it. The way that it came about was the king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. And then in the ninth year of Hosea, after the city, the capital city was under siege for three years, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, defeated the city, and deported, carried off all the people of Israel over to Assyria and settled them in a bunch of these different places. Hala goes down on the Haber River and in the towns of the Medes. That's serious business. The nation of Israel went down. And this is what the Bible describes. It's a lower story. This is a very political, historical account of what was happening. Now, what we're about to read in the next verses, Elizabeth, come on up. She's going to read to us verses 7 through 23, is what the Bible calls the upper story. Do you remember the difference between the lower story and the upper story? 
If the lower story is the happenings, the things that make the newspaper, it's the political situation, the historical events, what's the upper story talking about? I I can't hear, sorry. I'm way up front. You have to be loud. Yes, the spiritually, what's happening from God's perspective? What's God's doing that you may not be able to see with your natural eyes, but is the way that God's moving forward his purpose and redemptive plan? And so here comes the upper story, chapter 17, verses 7 through 23. All this took place because Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nation the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. Do you all know what Asherah poles are for this? Uh, The deal there... You know, in worshiping the gods of the Canaanites, there wasn't just one and only one god. There were these different Baals, Asherahs, Asterahs, variety of gods. And the, the Asterahs and Asherahs are the female deities. They're responsible for fertility. And so Asherah poles were sites that were set up for worshiping these, the goddess of fertility and productivity. And so it often involved sexual practices as well as sacrifices. At every high place they burned incense, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, You shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey, and that I delivered to you through my servants the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers, who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, Do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols, cast in the shape of calves, and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts, and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery, and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel, and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore, the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. When he tore Israel away from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, son of Nebat, their king. Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence, as he had warned through all his servants his prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are still there. Thank you, Elizabeth. The litany sort of repeats itself. You know, the first verse there, verse 7, 
explained that all this happened because the Israelites had been unfaithful. And then the rest of those verses are the repeated litany. It's like a song with a repeating chorus and another verse with a little change. But the message is repeating to us. The Israelites had done what the Lord forbade. They had turned to other gods and worshiped them. It's always gods in the plural. It's not just some other god. It's gods in the plural. And did you catch the the last thing that Elizabeth said? The last bit of verse 23 says, and they are still there. This is a history that wasn't written as live breaking news. This isn't, you know, eyewitness news flash. This is history that's written down later, reflectively, considering. It's history as lesson rather than history as the latest news of the moment. This is that God's people, years later, reflecting and saying, how did we get here? How did we go from the days when David was king or when Moses was leading us out of Egypt and we were seeing God's presence and his miracles every day? How have we gone from the days when the glory of God was visible and resonant among us into this? It's history as a lesson because we need to learn from heaven's evaluation of our history. You know, it's easy for you and I just be moving through our own lives at high speed. You know, it's holiday season, and a lot of us are moving fast. Some of us traveling out of town to keep up with family, or we're running from house to house with different get-togethers and relative things, and then it's boom, back into school, or we're starting the new curriculum in January, and it's go, go, go all the time. We need to pause and hear heaven's evaluation of our history. It's the days of our own lives. It's also the history of generations because heaven has an evaluation. God looks and he looks below the surface. You know, even as we were singing earlier today, guys, nice job, thank you. And he says, beneath the way things appear, God's looking, God sees, and he has an evaluation. And heaven's evaluation of our lives, heaven's evaluation of our history uses a different standard than the way the world measures success. You know, the world measures success in part based on our income, the kind of house we live in, what neighborhood we're in. What kind of job do you have? How many people are under you at your job? What kind of car are you driving? We were down in Florida visiting my wife's parents at Christmas, uh, and they live in a retirement community, large retirement community in Florida. And, And they've pointed out that once you reach a certain age, nobody's competing anymore about what job they used to have so many years back or even how big their house is now. There's a little bit about how fancy your golf cart is. But, uh, but, but the competition is more about how many medications you're on or not on at that stage. Humans find a way to compare with one another. But God's evaluation of us is not based on what your neighbor's doing or what someone else is doing, but the devotion and faithfulness of our own hearts to himself. You know, there's nothing in verses 7 through 23 about whether paying tribute to Assyria or to Egypt was a more savvy political decision on the part of the king. There was nothing in verses 7 through 23 about the relative wisdom or savviness of the political positioning or the economic situation of the nation. Heaven's evaluation 
was about spiritual faithfulness. When God evaluates my life and your life, he's not using the same standards that even the obituary page in the newspaper wants to report on. God's looking for our faithfulness and devotion to himself. It's all about the real God or other gods. And in this respect, from the exodus to the exile, there is only one main issue. Idolatry is not one issue among many issues. Next slide. It is the issue. Idolatry is the one main issue. Over and over again throughout Israel's history, we see this is the issue. Instead of serving the Lord with exclusive devotion, we see you know, God, what God had said was, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, exclusively, none others. But instead, what do we read? Elizabeth just read to us from chapter 17 of 2 Kings. Under, uh, from every watchtower to fortified city, on every hilltop and under every big tree, the people are constructing ways to worship other gods. Israel's not being evaluated on their economy, on their political decision-making, but whether they've been faithfully devoted to the Lord. Or whether from heaven's perspective, they've been doing the spiritual equivalent of sleeping around with all these other gods. You see, in verse 15, this might have caught your ear when Elizabeth was reading. In verse 15, it says this. They, worship, they followed worthless idols and they themselves became what? They followed worthless idols and they themselves became worthless. We become like what we worship. You see, worship is all about worth. That's actually where the English word worship comes from. It's derived from the Old English, worth-ship. And it's gradually been shortened to worship. It's about what's worthy. It's about who's worthy and the worth that we ascribe to him. You know, what we worship shapes our own worth. What we determine and decide and ascribe worth to that shapes our own worth. What's worth everything to you? The Canaanite gods, the Baals and the Ashtoreths, they're all about material wealth, success, and prosperity. They demanded sacrifices, in many cases, very brutal child sacrifices. They sacrificed their children in the fire to the Baals and the Asherahs. Now, but one thing these Canaanite so-called gods did not insist on, they did not insist on exclusive devotion. If you were worshiping Baal, it was expected that you'd also be worshiping Asherah. If you were making offerings to Asherah, no problem. Of course, you're also making offerings to Baal. It wasn't just one Baal. They even had Baals for different mountains and different places. The, it was understood that you're not worshiping one, you're worshiping many. And in a sense, that kind of worship was something of a fee-for-service business transaction. Because you'd go and you'd make your offering at the altar because there was something you wanted 
from Baal. Maybe it was you were, you were so concerned to have a good harvest this year. Maybe you couldn't have a baby. So you're going to Asherah and saying, here's an offering. I need a baby. Maybe if you were really serious, you'd take the baby and sacrifice it to get more wealth or power or control. But you weren't expected to give exclusive devotion to that God. It was a bit like a business transaction. You're bringing your offering because there's something you want. Brothers and sisters, that's an approach to worship that hasn't gone away in 3,000 years. That's still a temptation issue that we face. To try to come to the God of heaven on our own terms. To bring him what we think he wants so that we can get what we think we need or want. It can be a driving force of worship. But that's not what heaven wants for us. That's not what God wants our relationship with him to be like. Now, God, Yahweh, the Lord, the, one, the only one who can say, I am who I am and will always be who I am. He promises blessing for faithful obedience, but he also disciplined his people for their disobedience and chasing other gods because the Lord demands exclusive devotion. God is calling and desiring and wants us to be in an exclusive relationship with him. That's what marriage is a picture of. The marriage that some of us have and enjoy, that others of us have suffered through and are broken, is intended to be a picture of God's exclusive relationship with the people who are exclusively devoted to him. That's why he invented marriage, was to indicate this and express it and have a demonstration on earth. But is it easy? It's not easy. Marriage isn't easy because sin has come and it's broken something at the root of our own faithfulness. Marriage is a challenge because inside us we want to rebel and we're self-oriented instead of being willing to give ourselves to serve and love another individual for the rest of our lives. And in the same way, sin breaks our faithful. Whatever God had intended to be faithful in us has been distorted and marred by sin. And so the temptation to chase and follow these other gods, it's, it's there in every period of history. It's here today for you and me. But God's imagery for the relationship that he wants with you is that of an exclusive, devoted love relationship. God doesn't want you to be a slave to false gods. He wants you to know the love and faithfulness that only he can bring in your life. And there is something about your own worth and the image of God that you will only experience and come to fully realize in that exclusive relationship with him. We will only achieve the fullness of the worth that God has created us for when we worship him and him only. But it's tempting to just try to get more for less, take a, you know, chase the thing we want instead of just giving ourselves exclusively to the Lord. The Bible describes that as the spiritual equivalent of having an affair instead of being in a committed marriage. And so what we need is a paradigm shift that we're not worshiping the Lord primarily to get something that we want, but because of who he is and the relationship that he calls us into. 
Because if we worship for the sake of what we want to get, we will end up slaves to false gods. And God's way of calling his people to a paradigm shift was to send prophets who would help us see from his perspective instead of from our broken and flawed, sinful perspective. And one of the prophets that God sent, he sent during this very time, this very season, when this was going on up in the northern kingdom of Israel, a prophet named Isaiah was prophesying in the southern kingdom of Judah to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And if you have your Bible with you, turn over to Isaiah chapter 5. Now, your Bible is not organized chronologically. It's organized in sections. And so the prophet Isaiah, his book is a little bit to the right of the midpoint of the Bible because the Psalms come after the so-called history books and then here come the prophets. But in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah is bringing a song. It's It's actually a very poetic imagery from God's perspective about how God feels about what's going on in the northern kingdom with his people. And so Isaiah chapter 5 verse 1 says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower on it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Notice that the voice and perspective just changed. Instead of singing a song about my beloved in his vineyard, now we have the vineyard owner speaking. And he says, judge for me, dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah. Judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now, these are what are called rhetorical questions, right? Uh, The question is not being asked because the answer is uncertain or unknown. The answer is assumed, right? We know the answer here. No, you did everything you could do. There was nothing that you left at fault. Yes, the vineyard should have brought what kind of fruit, good or bad? Good fruit, right? And look, here's the paradigm shift. It's not supposed to be about what I get from God. It's about the fruitfulness that God is entitled to expect from what he's done for me. So Isaiah continues uh, in verse five. Now I will tell you, what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Let's go to the next slide, Adam. And let's just do a little biblical interpretation together, shall we? All right. So who's the vineyard owner? 
Good answer. That's God himself. And who's the vineyard that he's talking about? Very good. It's a poetic picture, isn't it? He's not talking about a physical you know, set of vines that he's expecting to produce grapes. He's talking about his people, the nation of Israel. And what was God looking for as a harvest of good grapes? What did he expect to find? Righteousness, good, justice. But what did he find instead? Evil, oppression, bloodshed, injustice, unrighteousness. The opposite of what he was looking for. You know, the injustice and bloodshed in Israel were the result of the idols they were serving. We become like we worship. The people were worshiping brutal, selfish gods. And it brought out selfish brutality in the people. So what is God saying he's going to do? He says, let it be destroyed. He said, I'm going to take away the hedge that protects you. I'm going to break down the wall. And I'm going to leave you to the destructive harvest of the seeds you've sown. Now God is saying it's judgment time. Here's a remarkable thing. Just check back again with me here. Where is Isaiah prophesying about this? Correct. He is in Judah. He's down in Jerusalem. Because he's saying, O men of Judah and Jerusalem, judge between me and my vineyard. So these are events that are happening in the northern kingdom of Israel and Samaria. But the prophet is speaking not in Samaria to the people of the northern kingdom, but to the people of Judah and Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. This is a warning. It's not intended just as a newsflash. It's a warning to God's people in the southern kingdom to turn from their unfaithfulness and be devoted to the Lord or else they will receive the same harvest as the northern kingdom as well. It's a warning that destruction and judgment will come on the southern kingdom as well as the northern kingdom if the southern kingdom continues to behave as the northern kingdom does. Brothers and sisters, God does not delight in judgment, but in mercy. God is graciously bringing an opportunity to the southern kingdom to turn from the ways of their brothers and sisters in the north and avoid his judgment. God's heart is not for judgment. It's for rescue. And so God sends the prophet to speak and bring this opportunity. Here's what it's about. God's judgment is not primarily about punishment. It is actually about redemption and rescue. Because here's what's happening. For generations, the idolatry of the kings of Israel have brought the infection of the other gods and of idolatry throughout the people of the northern kingdom. And it's infected the southern kingdom. And idolatry is a terminal cancer. And it's metastasized from the north into the south as well. And God is intervening with radical surgery to rescue the patient. It seems so destructive and so hurtful and harmful. If you know someone or yourself have gone through a radical cancer surgery, 
you know, it seems so invasive, it is painful, it is destructive. And yet, it's, it's done to give the patient a chance to survive. To say this sickness is so serious that it takes radical measures to attack it. Could we recognize, please, I appeal to you to realize how seriously God takes idolatry. He takes it so seriously because he knows that he's real. God takes idolatry so seriously because he knows that he is worthy. God takes idolatry so seriously because he knows that he is who he is and that all the counterfeit gods are pretenders who will just destroy us. And so God acts with radical judgment, with radical move to deal seriously with something that we don't take seriously enough. Because we think we can sleep around a little bit and it's no big deal. But God's saying, no, to save you, I need to save you to myself exclusively. I need to save you to myself only. And God's love for his people is so great that he will take extreme measures to rescue them and to rescue us from the deception and slavery of false gods and demonic powers. It's not primarily about punishment, but about radical redemption and rescue. If we could see from heaven's perspective, we'd be that much more seriously devoted ourselves. Look, we can see a few chapters later. If you're in your Bible, flip over from Isaiah 5 over to Isaiah 9. Historically, contextually, it's all of a piece. It's all in the same context here. But here's what happens. God is so serious about redemption and rescue that he sends his own son to deal with the root of our sinful idolatry. In the midst of the darkness, God renews his promise. When it seems like things are just as dark as they can get, God speaks hope and he speaks life. You may have gotten yourself into a real mess of a situation in your own life as well. You may be experiencing the discipline of the Lord and it feels hard and like it's going from worse to worser. But hear the word of the Lord. There is a savior and there's hope and there's rescue. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter nine. He says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who, are in, who were in distress. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's in the northern kingdom. In fact, it's the area of Galilee. In the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. A remarkable statement for a God who at the surface you might think he was only trying to rescue one nation. But no, his heart is for all the nations, not only Jewish people, but the Gentile nations themselves. And so in the very place that in Isaiah's time, the judgment of God has come and God has humbled the northern kingdom with judgment and destruction, God says the hope is going to arise in the very place that the judgment had come. In, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. What's about to happen? He says, the people who are walking in darkness 
have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. It's a complete transformation from defeat into victory, from going off into slavery to celebrating a triumphant victory. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor, and every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It'll be fuel for the fire, for unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government, the rule, will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness, the very fruit of the kingdom that God is looking for. His Savior King will establish. Oh, from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Not because His people are successful, His people are faithful, His people are righteous. No, but because God is righteous. God is faithful. God can fulfill His purpose. God's promise of His coming King It's renewed in the moment of his discipline. God's judgment is set in a redemptive context. And his redemptive promise is set in the context of his relentless determination to fulfill his purpose. God has not let go of his promise of salvation. Even when things are very dark, there's a deep river of mercy that flows from the heart of God towards a sinful people. There is a mercy that flows as such a deep river that it washes away our sins. God reaches out to us. He brings hope. He brings mercy in the midst of his discipline. God sent his son to save us from our sins. Nevertheless, he says... Nevertheless, there'll be no more gloom. Nevertheless, those who are in distress will find a savior. Nevertheless, even the judgment of God is for just a moment. And his mercy comes new and fresh in the morning. Even when things look hopeless, nevertheless, God's salvation is coming. Better things are coming. Nevertheless, you see, God brings his discipline into our lives as well to turn us from our rebellious ways, to let us experience a flicker of the consequence of serving other gods so that we'd be reminded and drawn back to himself. God uses his discipline to draw us closer to himself. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, it's a statement of great hope. 
It's a statement that declares that even though we don't deserve it, God is bringing his mercy and salvation to us. Nevertheless, it's the promise that today's darkness turns into tomorrow's dawn. Nevertheless, is God's declaration that his faithfulness, not our unfaithfulness, is the basis and the determinant of his actions towards us. Hallelujah. God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. But as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for us. Nevertheless, it's not our unfaithfulness that determines how he treats us. It's his faithfulness that determines his actions toward us. For unto us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government is on his shoulders. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have a great king. His name is Jesus. Hallelujah. The zeal of the Lord Almighty has accomplished this. God sent his own son from heaven. He came, and in a way that none of us have ever done or could ever do, he fully fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements. He lived in perfect devotion to his heavenly father, without sin, and he offered his own life as a sacrifice to take my place and to take your place. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom because a light has dawned. The sun has come. Jesus came. He was born. He lived righteously. He fulfilled the law on our behalf. And he died and he rose again. Today he's seated on a heavenly throne at the right hand of the Father and ruling and establishing with justice and righteousness the fullness of the kingdom that God has proclaimed and purposed. So grateful for this Jesus. Now, as we share communion this morning, actually, could we have the musicians come up? You guys would lead us again in the song, perhaps when the music fades. And if we could have the bread and the juice for communion. As we come to share communion, it is a declaration of the hope that comes, even in the darkest moment. Because it was on the night that he was betrayed that Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup. He said, this is the blood of a new covenant. A covenant that's not based any longer on our ability to do it all right, but is based in his righteousness and his sacrifice. And so as the bread and the cup are distributed, this is a moment for you and for I to renew an exclusivity of devotion to the Lord himself, to turn our backs on idols and turn our face again towards the Lord. Say, I'll worship the Lord and serve him only. As the bread and cup are going, join with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that on the night you were betrayed, you gave thanks and you took the bread and you broke it. Jesus, we honor you, the one of supreme worth, worthy of all of our worship to declare, Lord Jesus, thank you for being the only one found worthy to fulfill the purpose, the saving purpose of God the Father. Jesus, we honor you this morning. Lord, we say you are worth more than every other idol or God or desire that we could chase. Lord Jesus, forgive us. 
for the way that our hearts turn aside and rush just to try to get what we want from wherever we think we can get it. Lord, we declare you are worth every ounce of who we are because you don't want just our sacrifice. You want all that we are. So Lord, we come to you. We draw near now. Say, Lord, have us. Have me. All that I am, Lord. 100%. Your very own.